I mentioned this morning that because of the that, that uh, science, that psychology, sorry, in its in its origins was trying to emulate what seemed to be the successful sciences, of the other other sciences, and therefore it was trying to describe the world of the psyche in terms of the lo- the laws within the psyche, and. Um, it is, psychology has become enormously popular, as you know, the, particularly in the, since the beginning of this century, especially in America, where just about every other student you meet has been studying psychology, and every, other, every person you meet has their own counselor or psychoanalyst or something. Um, and I think one of the, the reasons is that psychology has taken over the function of theology and philosophy um, and has the respectability and authority of a science. Um, the answers are not out there anymore. They're in here. Uh, and that's where we need to dis- discover them. So the que- for the questions of what is life about, and how should we live, and uh, why do we have the problems we do, people often turn to their counsellor or their therapist or whatever in this country. Perhaps they go to the GP first, um, try him out with a physical symptom, and then go on to a counsellor social worker or someone. And there was a, a psychiatrist called Anthony Clare who has written a lot of very interesting stuff. You quite often see him on television. Um, he wrote a, a few years back now that in, after he'd been particularly to a, in America looking at all the different, a huge sort of smorgasbord of, of therapies that were offered to people with psychological problems. He said this, many of the people flocking for counseling to encounter groups and so on seem to us to be unhappy, bewildered, and disoriented people searching for some philosophical principle, some system of values by which to live. The questions they ask are often the ultimate questions concerning existence, purpose, the meaning of life, happiness, pain, and death. We feel that the announced agenda of psychotherapy, with its heavy medical, secular, and pseudo-scientific flavor, insufficiently reflects its frankly religious undertones. And he's not saying he's he's not speaking as a Christian there. He's just recognizing that psychotherapists and counselors are dealing very often with the very basic questions of the meaning of life and where we get our values from and so on. So when in order to understand quite where we've got to, and to just illustrate a little more of the worldviews that lie behind these therapies, um, let's go back again and just run over that in a bit more detail. The first psychological laboratory was opened in Europe in 1879 by a man called Wilhelm Wundt. And he was very influenced by scientific materialism, by evolutionism. Um, uh, For Darwin's Origin of Species had been published just 20 years before. Uh, And he was trying, as I said earlier, to develop a sort of scientific model of the mind. And there were two offshoots from, from this. Um, his, his branch, in a sense, went on to become academic psychology, and particularly sort of academic behaviorism uh, and uh, research psychology. At the same time, you have Freudianism and behavior, behaviorism and the medical organic model sort of running in parallel, developing since the beginning of, of the century. And Freud was a, was a doctor, a neurologist, and a scientist. 
And uh, he had a picture of the universe as a great system of, of physical forces and human beings as mere byproducts of these forces. So in a paper that he wrote in 1895, he talked about the laws of omnipotent matter, the laws of omnipotent matter which, which govern us. Uh, he wrote a paper called The Project for Scientific Psychology. <clears throat> and he began this systematic exploration of the dark underworld of the unconscious, which had been, uh, which was known about and um, by the artists particularly, people like Wagner, a lot of his music came out of his dream world. Uh, or Nietzsche, the philosopher, um, who was who asked the question, where are the new doctors of the soul? Now that God was out, where are the new doctors of the soul? And, and Freud, in a sense, was saying, here I am. <laughs> um, let me in on this. So from his exploration of the dream world and the memories of his patients, he constructed a model of what he called the psychical apparatus. Psychical apparatus. It was a very mechanical sort of term. And he saw that the root cause of neurosis was sexual conflict. <clears throat> the passion of the child for the, the parent of the opposite sex. Um, the desire of the little boy to have an intimate relationship with his mother. And in order to do that, he, might, he had longings and wishes to get rid of father. So you have the whole Oedipus complex. Now, this, these sorts of ideas were, were not expressed by Freud publicly until he was about 53 years old. And they were met with derision and protest. One uh, scientific meeting, someone got up and said, after Freud had elaborated his views, he said, this is not a matter for a scientific meeting, this is a matter for the police. <laughs> <laughs> it was as if it was pornography that, that he was bringing in as, as science. Now, what's important to be aware of as Christians is that some of the things that Freud is saying are true and helpful. It's not all junk. Because he's not a Christian, you don't throw it all out. He was actually describing um, the sort of disintegration and alienation within us that we find between our emotions and our thinking. Um, the ways in which we defend ourselves against anxiety, his defense mechanisms that he describes, our classical descriptions are the ways in which we hide from reality, hide from sin, deceive ourselves. Um, the heart is, is wicked. And he's describing, not to putting it in terms of sin, but in just terms of the mechanics of it, of how we do it. Um, his uh, talking about the conscience, talking about people who have an over-strict conscience, is very helpful in us understanding people who have... Um, who have false guilt. Now he, of course, opened the door to getting rid of guilt completely in the psychological world. Because if you don't believe in God or any absolutes, then you're not guilty in front of anyone. So there were, there were some helpful things uh, in what he, was, what he was doing. But the problem was that he elevated his theories to fact just as Darwin's theories have been ele elevated to fact for our schoolchildren. So his theories became fact, and he spoke about them with such conviction and passion um, so that psychoanalysis became a sort of religion, a belief system, with its great high priest in Freud, and its, you had to be initiated by having psychoanalysis yourself. 
And at heart, it is strongly atheistic and anti-religious. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, Freud's views in relation to God, I think, are have affected our culture um, profoundly because they have been taken on into sort of public thinking. Um, <clears throat> he said that God is an illusion created by man to comfort himself. So God's not really there. It's just that we want, in our insecurities in this world, we want to have a nice, kindly Father God out there. So we invent him. In other words, he is a projection of our unconscious wishes. Um, so he says religion is the neurosis of mankind. That as you mature as a person, as the race matures, we will get past this need for a father God out there. Um, so, uh, and that sort of idea that God is a projection of our needs is very common in our, in our culture today amongst thinking people. He says that guilt arises from the Oedipus complex, the desire to get rid of father. And I, I just found this an extraordinary quotation when I first read it from Freud. He says this, I should like to insist that the beginnings of religion, morals, society, and art converge in the Oedipus complex. It constitutes the nucleus of all neuroses. It seems to me a most surprising discovery that the problems of social psychology should prove soluble on the basis of one single concrete point, man's relation to his father. So he's reducing our problems in this world to ultimately to our relationship with our human fathers, but how close to the truth you can get. Um, it is really, obviously, as we would say, our, our relationship with God, our father, that we have broken, that is the, the root of our problems. <clears throat> So we see Freud's diagnosis is so close and yet so far from the truth. He was acutely aware of man's sense of guilt, of his broken relationship with his, very often with his human father. He was acutely aware of the brokenness, the alienation, the deceitfulness within ourselves. <clears throat> and uh, so in that sense, we can say there are partial truths here within a false framework. <clears throat> Let me just give you, I don't know whether you can read my scribble here, but, um, focused, is it? I wouldn't bother to take it all down. I don't I think it would take you another while, but <clears throat> essentially, again, just to summarize, he's, he believes that we have come from impersonal matter by a process of evolution. There's no personal God creating us. Um, and our present state is one of a conflict of instincts where we are determined by our genes, by our environment, and the Oedipus complex, the root of, of neurosis. This is, I'm, I'm obviously summarizing very uh, drastically here. And our destiny is maybe a little more happiness uh, through self-understanding, self-control, through the process of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Um, and ultimately, stoic resignation in the face of oblivion. And, and the word stoic describes Freud very well. He had 16 operations on cancer of the palate in his, the latter years of his life. No, actually, I think it was more than that. In the last 16 years, he had many operations. And he bore them all, probably before they had very adequate anesthesia, with incredible stoic resignation. It's, that characterizes his view of life. 
in the face of suffering and pain and brokenness, we should resign ourselves in this way. Now, let's move to behaviorism now. And here you see um, a similar root of ideas in terms of the origins of mankind in impersonal matter through a process of evolution. And ultimately, all is matter, including the mind. Okay, so there's no spiritual world. Only what you can measure, taste, touch, uh, and see is reality. What the philosophers call a positivist view of reality. There's nothing beyond what science can tell you about reality. And man is a complex biological organism, determined again by his genes, his chemistry, and his environment. And his destiny is a, a sort of brave new world scenario where an elite few determine the, the uh, environment in which we live where we'll be given reinforcements for good behavior, punishments for bad behavior. If any of you have read, have any of you, do you know of the book Walden 2? It's, uh, if you're interested in behavior, it's well worth reading. It's a novel of a utopian society that Skinner himself, B.F. Skinner, who was one of the fathers of behaviorism, uh, imagines the world to be. And he himself, of course, is God controlling it all, uh, leading on into oblivion. Now, the basic principle is that man is essentially a conditioned animal. You know about Pavlov's dogs and Skinner's pigeons and, and so on. Um, and I think it's important to to distinguish between three types of behaviorism, especially if you're working in the area of psychology. There's what I call a metaphysical behaviorism, or philosophical behaviorism, which is the belief that we are purely determined by our genes, our environment, that we have, that freedom is only an illusion. And there are a few people who believe that. Um, not that many, but there are some pure determinists, behaviorists. Then there is a methodological behaviorism, so it's getting a bit technical here for a moment, which is a model which directs much laboratory research uh, on human and animal learning. But you don't necessarily have to presuppose that metaphysical behaviorism is true. Okay, so you can use it on dogs and pigeons and rats, and, and in a sense, they are conditioned. We are, we are similar to them, as I said earlier, in some respects, in that we can have reflexes conditioned. And then there is applied behaviorism, which you see in clinical psychology, with techniques of behavior modification. For instance, someone with phobia, a phobia <coughs> um, can be cured quite easily with behavior modification techniques, which are used very frequently. Claustrophobia, agoraphobia, phobias of this, that, and the other. And again, you don't need to presuppose meth metaphysical behaviorism to use those techniques. So again, you see there are truths in this, true to the way we are, but the problem with behaviorism is that it is taken and made a great system and becomes a religion of its own, with its own beliefs and assumptions. So again, to be a Christian, you don't have to say, I can't, that's behaviorism, I can't touch it. There are certain techniques which are very useful uh, in counseling and psychiatry, which come from the behaviorist uh, ideas. Now, I won't go into the philosophical problems of behaviorism at this point. Um, 
But I'm just returning to my theme again and again that these are partial truths within a false framework. And as I said earlier, these two dehumanize uh, man in saying that our freedom and our dignity and our uniqueness are an illusion. <clears throat> now, I mentioned in the, in the lecture that Carl Jung is a sort of bridge into humanistic psychology and um, transpersonal psychology. And I mentioned some of the, the positive things about him, but also some of the negative things in terms of his um, resistance to Freud's reductionism in relation to sex, his uh, positive view of the, of the spiritual world, but going on into a sort of Eastern view of spirituality, um, and his saying that the unconscious is not just a, a seething mass of aggression and sex, which is what Freud implied, but has many positive things. It's a rich storehouse of treasures to be explored. And this opened the door to the whole cult of self-awareness, which has, again, particularly in America, um, within the counseling world, humanistic psychology. Humanistic psychology essentially has a very positive view of man. Abraham Maslow, uh, one of the fathers of humanistic psychology, wrote a book called Towards the Further Reaches of Human Nature. And he's saying that we need to explore creativity and love and beauty, uh, all the positive aspects of man, whereas, in a sense, Freud was, and the behaviorists were talking about all the negative, destructive things. Um, Carl Rogers uh, written a book called On Becoming a Person, which anyone who does psychology is supposed to read at some point. Again, with a, a positive view of, of, uh, of man believing that you could help people to change and to grow by, by giving them acceptance, essentially loving them, as we would see it from a Christian perspective, and helping them to discover the good things from within them. Now, the problem was he said that it's all in there. You don't need God or the Bible or anything outside yourself. You only need what is in you, and you will find the truth about reality within you. So, just again to summarize this circle, the same origin, evolution from matter, but here they are struggling to try and say that even though we have evolved, we are unique and special and significant. Now, they have no basis for it, and this is where you find a, a lack of foundation. But let me just read you a couple of quotes from... Uh, um, a book on, I've got the reference here, on psych images of man in psychology, which is actually the title of my thing, but this is written by a non-Christian, an existentialist. And he says this, um, it is not nature, but we ourselves, who are responsible for making and maintaining ourselves as distinct from the beasts and all else that there is. Man is a self-defining animal. So he's saying, we are animals, but we're more than animals. We have a choice to make ourselves special. Okay? It matters, then, what we believe ourselves to be. So somehow we can transcend our biology and our evolution and control it. A tremendous optimistic view of human nature, in contrast to Freud's and, and the 
Freud's pessimistic view. And they believe that we have unlimited potential for perfection and goodness. So Theodore Rozak, who was one of the, the leaders of the humanistic movement in California in the, in the 60s and 70s, said, we are the unfinished animal charged with the task of self-perfection that troubles the mind with images of godhood. We are the unfinished animal charged with the task of self-perfection that troubles the mind with images of godhood. So we, we, will, we can, in a sense, control our evolution and become good and perfect. In the eclipse of God, Theodore Rosek says, we have no place to begin but in ourselves. And Rogers says, experience is for me, subjective experience is for me the highest authority. It is to experience that I must return again and again to discover a closer approximation to truth as it is in the process of becoming in me. Neither the Bible nor the prophets, neither Freud nor research, neither the revelation of God nor man can take precedence over my own direct experience. Okay, so truth lies within. You remember those two arrows going out. Experience was the sort of touchstone of reality. And essentially this, I believe, is a form of, of, of self-worship a deification of, of man. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I think that there has been a movement in the last 20 or 30 years away into a transpersonal psychology and a very different view of reality. And this is the view of reality that is coming at you from all corners in what is in other places described as the New Age movement. If you don't know about the New Age movement, you need to get yourself educated fast because it's happening all around you in subtle ways, in obvious ways. Um, and it is transpersonal psychology is a sort of convergence of Eastern mysticism, uh, humanistic psychology, existential ph philosophical ideas, and Western Freudian behavioristic psychology. So to you know, put it all in a pot and stir... Uh, but underlying it, you have a particular view of the nature of reality. But ultimate reality is impersonal mind or spirit. But matter, real reality, uh, is not material, not physical. We need to transcend the limitations of matter, which is really an illusion. And there is an essential unity of all things uh, and an innate perfection which we have to discover and learn to live in that perfection. Now this may all sound a bit weird if you're not used to these ideas. And it is, it's very hard to grasp because we are so used to thinking in, in, in a different way. And this is a completely different view of reality and way of seeing. And through it, psychic power is available. So all sorts of um, psychic powers are cultivated through meditation and through enlightenment experiences and so on in this way. And our destiny is that our individual self with a small s is absorbed into the greater self with a big S, which is impersonal spirit, mind, um, nirvana, 
the drop falling into the ocean, as they would say, and being lost in the ocean. Now, it may take you, if you're a Buddhist, many thousands of reincarnations to get there, but that's the ultimate goal. So you will find that reincarnation is very often a big part of this worldview. And that's a whole other lecture in itself, which I won't try and go into now. Now, it's important, too, to notice that, that holist, the holistic health movement, there can be two sorts of holistic health. There's a Christian holism, which has a, a, a very a strong view of treating people as whole people, minds and bodies, set in families, a whole view of people, not just treating a doctor treating a person as a, as a, as a limb or a, an appendix or whatever, um, which is a very reductionist view. Um, but So there is a right Christian holism, but a lot of the holistic impetus in the holistic health movement comes from an Eastern view of reality and imports a lot of rather dubious, questionable techniques and healing arts from the East, which each have to be evaluated in their own right to discern what is true in them and what is false, what to be aware of and what can we use. And what's very important is to understand the worldviews that lie behind them, not just to evaluate them purely on a pragmatic basis, that that may be a part of it, but to really understand where they lead you in terms of your thinking. Um, Okay, so we're going on now to just summarizing in a similar sort of way the framework of a Christian psychology. Here we are in the middle of that diagram, noting that there are partial truths within false frameworks in these circles, but we need to turn to Scripture, as I said this morning, to get the framework within which to uh, evaluate what is true and false and to develop our own view of, of a Christian psychology. And essentially it is a, obviously a theological framework here, of creation by a personal God, not impersonal matter, of a perfect man and woman, a universe that is both material and immaterial, spiritual, not either just one or the other, that man is a unity of body, mind, and spirit, but that all this went wrong at the fall, as we were saying this morning and last night, and there is alienation at every level of being man and God, man and himself, man and woman, man and man, and man and nature. And you see that framework sketched out in, in Genesis chapter 3 and then filled out in, throughout the whole of Scripture. And then looking forward to future restoration and the beginning now in terms of the first fruits of the future in our lives uh, when we become Christians. <coughs> So that future glory and perfection is to be ours. Now, this, in a sense, is the, the overarching framework within which we then have to evaluate. And it is necessary to recognize, as I've tried to say all along, the areas of common ground and difference between Christians and non-Christians. There are some... 
you want me to leave that up for a minute? Can I put it back up again in a minute? I just want to go on to another diagram. Um, the relationship between psychology and, and theology is seen in different ways. The first one is what I call the Bible only, an excluding attitude, which says all that psychology stuff is the devil's kingdom. Don't touch it with a barge pole. Don't get near it. All you need is the Bible for counseling people with problems. Okay? The second would be what's called the equal but different or compartmentalized um, where you say, yes, I have uh, the Bible and Christian truth for my for church and for uh, my family readings with my, my children and whatever. And when I go to work and I'm a psychologist, that's a different area of truth and I work within that. So they're, they're separate compartments and they don't overlap. Okay, Now that could be true whether you're a sociologist, psychologist, uh, economist, whatever. Some Christians live in two compartments and don't work out the relationship between the two. The third is what others have called a tossed salad model uh, or assimilative where essentially you, you mix them all up together and you take what feels good uh, of the psychological stuff uh, and um, not very discerning about what is good and what is bad okay? um, and then the fourth is what I have called a Christian integrationist model. Others have called a circumspect eclecticism. <laughs> Christian eclecticism, in other words, you, you have reasons for choosing what is true out of the other models uh, from informed from your Christian framework. Or spoiling the Egyptians, you know, taking what is good with you when you leave the, leave the leave Egypt. Um, but essentially it is uh, I've got a different picture there. Essentially, that bottom one is is, is this this model, um, or using these pictures, it is um, saying that some there is truth in the world of psychology, secular psychology, which we need to acknowledge fits within the framework of biblical truth. <coughs> and going back that one up again for you. So we need to recognize the areas of common ground and the areas of difference at three levels. At the level of assumptions, and those beliefs about human nature and the world, reality. And the area of aims and goals. What is this counselor or therapist trying to do? Where are they trying to go with this person? Or what is this particular school of therapy? What direction is it going in? And the area of methods. Are there methods that they use that I can use? So that, for instance, in uh, Gestalt psychology that some of you may have heard about, there are some very helpful techniques. Gestalt psychology comes out of the circle of humanistic psychology, but it uses very helpful techniques to help people to get in touch with what they're really feeling about things. So that if somebody is telling me about uh, a very difficult relationship with their mother or their father, I might say to that person, well, just imagine that your father is sitting here in the chair. What would you like to say to them? 
I did this the other day with a girl, and she literally went like this. It was a, phys a strong physical reaction. So just imagine him sitting there. And she reacted so violently, she was horrified, and I was amazed. Because she never, she didn't know how strongly emotionally she felt afraid of her father. She knew it intellectually, but she'd never experienced it in, in her sort of heart of hearts. And it was really a key to unlocking a lot of things in her relationship with her father. Um, and that, that technique is a very simple one, but it comes from the world of Gestalt therapy and humanistic psychology. And there are a number of other things like that one could go into. So to recognize the, the areas of common ground and difference in those three levels, um, and to recognize always the dangers of reductionism, it's called nothing buttery in science. The science always tends to reduce things to simple equations, simple explanations. And people, we, are more complex than that. Um, so beware of the sort of simple explanations of, of things. And I think this leaves us free not to be defensive or apologetic in psychology and psychiatry. Um, but in a sense to say, look, we have a model of, of man. We have a model of rea a view of reality which really fits reality. And if you think of these, if you think of the search for truth in the universe as being rather like trying to find the key which fits the lock um, of our, ex we, we have our, experience, our subjective experience of, of the world in which we live the creation, the beauty of it, but also the ugliness of, of some of it. Um, the, the beauty and, and amazing diversity that we find within ourselves as people, musical gifts, artistic gifts, but also the mess that we are inside. And we look around and say, well, what's the, how can we explain this? Someone searching for truth. It's like trying different keys. And each of these worldviews here, a sense, is a, is a key which people are trying and saying, does this fit reality? And I, as a Christian, firmly believe that the Christian key, as it were, this view in the center, fits reality better than all the others. This is one of the reasons why I'm a Christian. It's not the whole reason, but it's certainly one, one reason. So psych Christian psychologists and psychologists need to do a lot of work in developing all of this. Um, but uh, I think there is a, we need not be defensive and apologetic in approaching the non-Christian world. So just a summary sentence, that only in the light of revelation, only in the light of revelation, and, man's ex and the experience of a relationship with God, does psychology find its true place. So you need both revelation and relationship. Only in the light of that is, are we prevented from being either dehumanized or deified. Only in the light of revelation and relationship do we go beyond mere speculation about the nature of our existence. <clears throat> now, I'm going to stop there. Um, and if you have any questions about any, any areas, any practical things about counseling, then do come back on me. Oh, actually, I'm not going to stop there. I just want to read you one quote. This is from a book called Psychological Seduction by a man called William Kilpatrick. And he was a man who was uh, 
very burned by the humanistic psychology movement in the States in the 60s. He tried to get help uh, from them and found himself, he, he was a sort of lapsed Roman Catholic, uh, and uh, realized what a powerful movement <coughs> humanistic psychology was. This is what he says at the end. This is Auguste Comte, who is a philosopher, who is generally credited as the founder of the religion of humanism, wanted to establish new humanist feast days to replace the Christian ones, which he was sure would die out. G.K. Chesterton, the great English apologist, um, professed disappointment that none of these humanistic feast days were forthcoming. He would be glad, he said, for an excuse for another celebration. <laughs> could easily imagine myself with the greatest enthusiasm lighting a bonfire on Darwin Day. <laughs> but of course, Comte and his followers failed in their effort. They have not, chided Chesterton, set up a single new trophy or ensign for the world's merriment to rally to. They have not given a name or a new occasion of gaiety. One does not, as he observed, hang up his stocking on the eve of the birthday of Victor Hugo, or sing carols descriptive of the infancy of Ibsen outside people's doors in the snow. Were Chesterton alive today, I think he might profess the same mock disappointment with the religion of psychology. Whatever its other virtues, and despite its claim to psychic liberation, psychology fails somehow to bring out our festive nature. We do not, if I might extend Chesterton's analogy, exchange presents or greeting cards on the birthday of Dr. Freud, or dance in a circle on the anniversary of his discovery of the unconscious. We do not have solemn processions or sing hymns on Jung Day, though Jung would certainly have proved. The memory of Pavlov does not put a spring in our step, nor do we let loose streamers or set off firecrackers in commemoration of Stimulus Response Day. <laughs> we do not eat roast turkey or pass the punch bowl on the feast day of Abraham Maslow, nor do we decorate eggs and hunt for them on Human Potential Day. Despite our faith in the theology of psychology, we do not find much cause for rejoicing in it. We do not do so today, and it seems safe to say that 2,000 years hence we still will not. <laughs> Any questions? Yes. I have a question about a book. I just came in the door a few minutes ago and I saw another book by Lawrence Crabb. Um, I recognize some of your material here from some other books by Lawrence Crabb. Would you recommend this one about understanding humans or understanding people? Understanding people. Yes, I think I would strongly recommend Lawrence Crabb's recent books particularly. Um, he's from the States. I know him. Um, and uh, he's certainly... Going, you know, has I've enjoyed his his books. Um, we've talked quite a bit. I think we're going very similar directions in this. His recent work, I, I find actually more it is better than some of his earlier work. He wrote some book, a book called Effective Biblical Counseling. I think he would acknowledge himself. He's moved beyond what psychologists would call a cognitive, a purely cognitive, rather behavioural model. Um, <clears throat> which I also find in, in Adam, J. Adams' approach, rather, to going deeper, to talking about the sins of the heart, uh, not just the sort of external behaviours. And he, what he goes into in his book is the need to go below the surface. That so many Christians are told when they have problems, oh, just pray more, read the Bible more, 
have this experience of the Holy Spirit, that experience of the Holy Spirit, and that will deal with your problems. He's saying that we need to go beneath that to understand how we, the various ways in which we protect ourselves against pain. Pain often that comes from earlier experiences in life. And often the sinful ways in which we protect ourselves. And ultimately to come before God in repentance. Seeing how we are, as I was saying in the earlier lecture, both victims of other people's sin, but also agents in the way we respond to that. So we are responsible before God. And much much counseling tends to emphasize the victim bit. You know, it wasn't your fault, it was your parents or your circumstances or whatever. And he's trying, as I would, to hold the balance between people being both victims and agents um, and responsible choice makers before God. He has a very good little bit in the beginning of that book on the relationship between theology and and psychology and counseling. So I would strongly recommend that book and his other one, Inside Out, which is similar. Um, Someone said to me, Inside Out means a sort of government health warning on it. Uh, Not that it will damage your health, but it may disturb you a lot uh, and uh, throw up all sorts of things that you weren't quite ready to meet. Um, But it's, it's a very helpful book too. Yes. Can I just ask, um, I'm a bit of a dilettante in this, I'm not a scientist, but I was interested and I've been reading a lot about particle physics, and I just wondered how that fitted in. Um, I mean, I read a book um, called The Tower of Physics, yeah. and uh, lightning, the physicist who lightening the, the particle world to the dance of Shiva, yeah. saying that this, this proved Eastern mysticism was right. Yeah. Uh, and when you get into the particle physics, it seems to me that um, uh, they lose track of what is reality, um, in fact, uh, the suggestion is that what happens to particles often depends on the thought of the observer. Uh, and I just wondered how you um, yes. comment. No, you're absolutely right. There's um, the Tao of Physics by a man called Fritjof Capra. If you're interested in this, it's, an, it's a very interesting book. And his other book, The Turning Point. I didn't quite like that one. <laughs> he didn't, no. Well, what he, what he does in these, he does a very good analysis of Western thought showing how dependent on a scientific positivist view of reality we have become in the West. Um, And he critiques a lot of Western thought in just the way that that we would. But then he goes on and says that the answer lies in, essentially, an Eastern view of reality, of all is one, and so on. And essentially these people are saying that science, and particularly recent developments in physics, prove the Eastern view of reality. Now the problem is that the Eastern view of reality actually undermines the very science that they are trying to use. Because it says that there is no real world out there to measure, to observe, and so on. Um, and, and they don't admit that. But you're quite right. It, it almost, you know, as you get into it, it dissolves science away. Um, but a lot of, quite a lot of physicists are very attracted to the Eastern view of, of reality. One of our folk at Greta must just done a lecture two on Stephen Hawkins. Um, um, what's his book called? Oh, something with the, time. I've got the, yes. I've got the book. I've read it. The one that's been the bestseller for yeah, weeks yeah. and weeks. Yeah. Something, what's it called? A Brief History of Time. A Brief History of Time, yeah. Yeah. Again, relating that in, too, this, to this whole movement. Yes. 
he mentions the various techniques that you can use mm. sort of in psychology and so on. And I wondered what you felt about hypnotism and where that felt and whether that would be a good one or Question about hypnotism. Um, <clears throat> <Ooh. laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I, um, I'm just trying to find where to begin on that one. There are some folk who say that you know you should beware of hypnotism. That's all the devil. Um, I wouldn't take that view. Um, I think you that one can use hypnotism. I mean, I have been hypnotized myself for very simple things. As doctors, we had to learn simple techniques to sort of anesthetize an arm. Um, simple things like dental anesthesia. I think it is a form of, of deep relaxation uh, and in which you are more willing to accept suggestions. And this goes back to the question that was asked earlier about mass hysteria, that we are very suggestible, and some people are more suggestible than others. I'm not a particularly good hypnotic subject because I'm too critical and <laughs> questioning. People who tend to accept things very easily are often good subjects. Um, and particularly the subjects that you see on these stage hypnotists, they get the people who are really suggestible and who will do anything, bizarre things. Um, and uh, I, I think you know, it can have a limited usefulness in terms of pain relief or whatever, I think you have to be very careful who the person is who is doing it and that you need to know them well and to trust them. I would not allow anyone to hypnotize me that I didn't know very well. Because I think suggestions can be implanted in the mind um, which we may not know much about. Um, I have a, a good friend who used to do quite a lot of hypnotism and he has stopped now because he feels it is he can do what he needs to do medically without it. Um, and I feel much the same. I, I don't see any need for using it. And I think it's complications. There are more complications than there are benefits. But I think it's, it's, it's using as a sort of transability of, of human beings. Um, do, you, I mean, do you want to come back on that? I mean, it's the sort of thing that obviously can be abused and can be misused, but whether that fact about it makes it wrong in itself, you just, you know, just sort of hear lots of ideas about it. Yeah. I just, I, I just feel just when you take people back, say, in regression therapy mm -hmm. and hypnosis to help them to have memories, remember things that are way back, uh, many people have very good reasons for defending against those memories. Uh, and if you take them back into that and then tell them that they won't remember anything that you've, that they, that you've done with them when they come, come back, uh, sort of, in other words, reinforcing the defense against it, I feel you know something about them. Which, and they will always have a difficult relationship with you. you are, in a sense, you're manipulating them, using them. On the other hand, if you, if you help them to explore some memory and then tell them they will remember it when they come out of the hypnotic trance, that could be helpful. It could be that they're not actually ready for that yet. And I think you can get in touch with the memory that they need to deal with by other means, and perhaps a bit more slowly, which will be in the long run more effective. Do these practices come under the, um, the, the title of what, um, divination in, uh, as described in the Bible, which is a rebellion against God? 
I wouldn't put hypnosis under that. No. I think that's more um, the whole sort of more occult area of um, getting involved in astrology and uh, psychic powers of other sorts. Um, is, it right, is it right that you control it all? Is what? Is it right to allow someone else to control you? Because you're giving them control, aren't you? Which I wouldn't have thought God would want you to do. Does some people maintain that you still have control? And it's a, is it something that you have power over and you, you give the control but you can get it back at any point? I, mean, I don't know an awful lot of that. But only if you're told that before. Right. If you're not told that you can have control, you believe you can't. <coughs> and therefore, in a sense, you don't. And this is one of the tricky <laughs> tricks with it. Um, and, and the people who, say, do stage hypnotism don't tell you that you can come out of it at any minute. Because you believe you can't, you don't. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, I, I have big questions about And that's why I said you need to know the person incredibly well. So let's say I'm going to the, my daughter is going to the dentist or something, and uh, I know the dentist really well, and I'm there in the room, and they, yes. they teach her a very simple hypnotic technique which helps her to relax. Yes. Uh, I wouldn't be too worried about that. That's a very simple use of it. Yeah. I have a similar concern, actually. I mean, it's not exactly related, but at um, the junior school when my daughter goes to, uh, they started to do yoga. There's a woman who comes in and... You know, uh, she does it free, very obliging and helpful to the school. They do this. The children love the exercise, uh, the dances and whatnot. You know, the dance. Uh, I'm sorry, certainly to Jason and Kylie. You know, which they all enjoy. And um, but it is, uh, she calls it yoga, whether yeah. you know, inverted commas, I suppose. And uh, it's just on the point where you should say, well, you don't want your child to be doing it, <coughs> or um, no. And actually, went and sat in. You did. One of the things, you know, I thought that was the best Good idea. Yeah. thing, or just say, oh, well, I wouldn't like Good. to do it, you know. Good for you. Because um, it's just as, it's like you say, there, there can be benefits in it. I think they enjoy it, and there's exercises and relax. Um, it's just, is it subtly allowing this to become accept, more and more accepted, you know, and become to bigger things? I think, I mean, yoga is, is a very good example um, of the way in which the whole New Age worldview, Eastern worldview, is being introduced into our culture. They taught yoga at the psychiatric hospital that I worked at. I went along like you and sat in to see what was happening. And it's very difficult, if you're teaching yoga seriously, to, to teach it without actually teaching the worldview that goes with it. So you ta start talking about the balancing of opposites, the yin, the yang, um, the harmony of forces within you, and so on. And, and the, the aim of yoga, of, of particularly of, of the physical ex forms of yoga, is to lead you to an experience of reality where you have an, an experience of enlightenment, of oneness, um, so that you see things as they really are. Uh, now, there are various levels. So in um, <coughs> the, the various chakras, as they're called, of the body, um, and the, the kundalini energy is supposed to be awakened from the sort of level one yeah. right up to level seven, where you have this experience of, of enlightenment. And the, the basic yoga exercises are at sort of base level. Now, you could say, well, you could do those just as physical exercises. And in a sense, for a child in school... Um, seven years old. 
where you know that as a, you as a Christian parent can help them to understand the true nature of reality um, if they are just doing the exercises and not being involved in, in uh, any sort of overt teaching of the ideas yeah. I think for the child's sake in terms of seeming a bit odd and weird if they opt out of it I, I would not make a big thing out of that um, I think I, I'm concerned though in terms of the overall effect I think I would talk to the teachers about yoga in general and um, want to be sure that the head teacher knew what yoga really was and the aim of yoga there is a book called Christian Yoga, published by a man, written by a man called Pedeshine, um, where, as far as I remember, sometimes I looked at it, as far as I can remember, he's actually, he actually tries to, uh, as it were, take hold of the, the, the physical techniques, at least, mm. and sort of, you know, have them in a Christian mm. context with a Christian perhaps, meaning. It's perhaps unwisely called it that, but really, hasn't yeah. it? it's called a Christian mm. Yoga. It's mm. a bit of a contradiction. Mm. Yoga means yoke, union. Yeah. Well, yeah, but in a sense, union is what Christians are about as well, union with God. Um, but so, in a very different meaning yeah, of union. But I suppose that that's what I was, I was, try, I was yes. trying, I can't remember much about it, yes. but as far as I remember, that's basically yeah, what he was trying to do, yes. Yeah. Um, I sometimes think uh, that this is the devilish way of... Um, of getting at us is to start misusing words, using mm -hmm. them wrong way. I mean, we've got a perfect one in the word of gay now. I think this is one of the ways we are usually conditioned. I would come back and say that, I mean, I've studied yoga, transcendental meditation, and I was in the Rosicrucians, mm. and they all appeal, and I went in upon, they all appeal to the businessman side, stress and control is more discipline and discipline. But they all subtly start moving you along into Eastern beliefs. Yeah. And they, what I use for, what I would call Marxist dialectic, they will make assumptions which are not supported by what you've just been learning and reading about. And I found this and, um, very misleading in the end. And uh, at the end of the day, they don't actually answer any life problems at all. Well, it's, it's great that you've had first-hand experience of it. Because, I mean, that's exactly the way I see it happening, is a very subtle it is very movement subtle. in terms very of your subtle. thinking yes. towards a completely different view of reality. Okay. And it's happening at every level. Yeah. You see it in, in Star Wars... Maybe Fintorn as well. I was up there. Fintorn is a part of the whole network, yeah. Richard, could you say a bit more about uh, New Age? I've got a lecture on tape. Could I actually ask a question to do with the New Age? Yes, okay. I went to um, a conference fairly recently about the dangers of the New Age, and uh, the person who was teaching us was talking about. Um, a kind of counselling whereby the counsellor takes the person uh, back in time uh, to a specific point in their experience which was traumatic and um, in prayer takes Jesus back with them and um, brings Jesus into the healing at that point mm -hmm. and brings them back to the present. Uh, do you know which kind I'm talking about? And uh, he said that that was um, kind of dangerous and was part of the New Age teaching. I was surprised at that because I know people have had that kind of ministry, and I've read about it quite a lot. And uh, what, what do you think? We've got this Frank Luke, the theology thing. That sounds. I can't remember where I read it uh, in various places. It's not quite Frank Luke. It's, it's sort of related that's, that's to that. That's what he was doing. It's fairly yeah. widely used uh, kind of counselling. Yeah. Isn't it? yeah. What's wrong? Yes, with there are, there are some some people. Um, 
who, in fact, would, on the more extreme end, would see that all psychology is uh, part of the new age. It's, it's dangerous. A man called Dave Hunt, who's written Seduction of Christianity, is it? And another book after that. Um, he, would, he would be very suspicious of anything psychological. And I think there are some parallels. I mean, the the, the um, New Age folk would use similar techniques of helping you to go back and uncover things in the past. Um, and I think some Christians are very suspicious of anything in the imagination. Uh, they feel it's, it's out of your control. I think we need to reclaim the imagination and to use the imagination. I think it's a very powerful tool to use in helping people to understand themselves. So I have no problem with taking people back in their imagination to certain memories or times. I do have a problem, though, in how you use Jesus in that situation. In a, it's a rather sort of technique thing. Um, some people would, would say, well, you bring Jesus into that situation, and um, Jesus, in a sense, makes it all right again. Um, and uh, this is getting into a rather complex area, because there's sort of small differences. But um, I think it's fine. I mean, I, I, I once asked a, a girl to imagine Jesus in the situation, and her father was in the room, a father who had very badly abused her. And I said, what, what would Jesus do in that situation? What is he doing in your imagination? And it helped her to see what her attitude should be towards her father and what God's attitude was to her. It helped her actually to forgive him. Um, it also helped her to see how angry God is with sin. But it wasn't Jesus coming in and, in a sense, replacing her father, as some people would use it, um, and sort of recreating reality as if that had never happened. Um, because people are left with scars and wounds from the past. And you can't recreate what has happened in the past. You can't make it as if it never happened. You have to learn to live with the consequences. So there are sort of subtle differences in the way people do it. But I wouldn't see it as a, a, a new age thing necessarily. Um, is that tending to use Jesus as a talisman? <clears throat> a bit that, yeah. yeah. So you wanted, Pam, you wanted to know more well, about Well, um, I mean, I first came across it when a friend of mine went on a cranky diet. And it turned <laughs> out that, you know, I mean, that's that. And he sort of questioned her and... Uh, put out, down various physical problems, sort of acidity and various other things, down to, you know, the things she was eating. She was gone on this very strange diet and lost a lot of weight and she was already very thin. And it turns out this is, this guy's into New Age. You know, she's a Christian and she, she got very concerned because she had heard of New Age and only latterly heard that, that this diet specialist, but it just seems to be, you know, okay, it's just a diet and it turns out it's New Age, you know, and I just sort of wondered what its ramifications were. Uh, well, you see it coming out in medicine and psychology as, as a, a very, very subtle but very yeah. pervasive yeah. thing. And, and obviously not all diets, well, these yeah. cranky diets yeah. are not new age. But it depend, I mean, there are, there's a lot, of, a lot of work being done on diet and nutrition, yeah. um, which is excellent yeah. and very helpful and, and, and useful. But it's when people market it with the new age ideas as well yeah. that it's almost as if you have to believe these ideas if the diet is going to work yeah. properly. So it's not just a diet, it's a, a mindset. So it's um, a rather like the yoga thing. I mean, there's just yeah. simple exercises, but then there's what's behind it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
But it seems to be such a hodgepodge of so many different things. Um, I think the CMF Journal, did you read it, Jane, the last CMF Journal? They did a summary of what, because apparently the CMF office has been inundated with inquiries as to what is this new age thing, you know. So they did a bit of a sort of editorial thing yeah. last couple of months ago, and it didn't say very much about it, actually, but just that it was obviously a massive hodgepodge of a number of different kind of, I mean, you wonder about various homeopathies and all these sort of mm. things, you know. And yet homeopathy has been around for a long time, and maybe Christians go for that sort of thing, I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't put homeopathy actually in, as you say, it's been around a long time, I wouldn't put that in the New Age thing. It's, it's an area that I don't, I don't fully understand. Are there any homeopathic practitioners here? I do know this, I do know this. That I, I, I looked at it with a fairly open mind until I heard a homeopath talk about it, and it sounds sort of rubbish, I don't believe in that. It's well, it's certainly very difficult to understand what is happening. Um, My wife... Um, does it in a small way. Yeah. And, uh, we, we've had a, she went on a three-day course, and um, she feels that it's, it's certain of the treatments are, are effective for certain ailments. Yeah. Um, but it's something that you, you can't expect to really cure the, the, the founder of, of homeopathy, a man called Hanneman, back in the last century, I think it was, uh, had a very extraordinary life himself, and several of his children, I think, died in rather bizarre circumstances. And some people look at this and say, well, this man must have been involved in the occult. Uh, and, and because homeopathy is such a bizarre thing in scientific terms, um, and what the, 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 the whole principle behind it is, in a sense, that like treats like. So if you, if you have measles... <coughs> uh, Sorry, you, you, find, you find a particular drug that causes the symptoms of measles in a normal person. Okay? So that if you have measles, then you, you take a, an absolutely minute dilution of this substance. And the more dilute it is, the more powerful it is. And they, they go through a sort of shaking or potentizing um, of, of this dilution. I mean, it's one part in millions, so that it's hardly demonstrable at all in, in the solution. Um, and uh, there are different levels of dilution, obviously. And some people, again, would say, well, this potentizing is so mystical and bizarre that it must be putting a, a power into it, a hidden power, an occult power. I'm not convinced of that. But I do know that several people, Christians, who have practiced homeopathy, who have decided that they shouldn't use the most, over about 12 times dilution they don't use, but they're prepared to use simple dilutions less dilute ones, because they feel that beyond that it gets really bizarre. There's a, there's a good book um, by a German doctor called Healing at Any Price, a man called Samuel Pfeiffer, <coughs> and he's looking at all the various fringe medical techniques. There's another book called New Age Medicine, published by IVP. If you want to, both of those are very helpful in, in looking at these various things. Yes. I have two questions about the books, please. Um, <clears throat> one of them is, as far as child sexual abuse, uh, any books that you know of that are especially okay, regardless in this case of whether they're particularly Christian or not. Mm. The, the other question is, like, in terms of books that are Christian-oriented, uh, in the last two or three years, any books that you think are especially good or meaningful? On, on your first question, I really don't know. 
on that. It's something that I n know I need to look into because <coughs> there's so much being written about it. Um, I know one of Larry Crabb's associates is doing seminars on sexual abuse in the States, and he's coming over to this country uh, next year, I think. Um, you mean the other question, more sort of general books about these things? One book that's excellent for anyone doing counseling is a book called Roots and Shoots by Roger Herding. It's a big, thick book, um, but excellent as a, as a resource for reference. He looks at all... He goes, in a sense, through a more detailed version of what I've done here, and then looks also at various Christian counseling, counselors and therapies. What's his last name? Roger Herding. H-U-R-D-I-N-G. I think it's published by Hodder. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. Um, Inside Out. That Larry Crabbe's ones I mentioned. Um, my own attempts to sort of understand depression in relation to, from the psychiatric view as a Christian, I've um, written about in my own book, The, Ro the Roots of Sorrow. Um, I think those are the, the, the main ones that I would recommend. Yes, where the back. Just going on that, <clears throat> just to say that there is that um, the recent movement beyond these four circles in, in the whole counseling psychotherapy field is very much towards what I would call a pragmatic eclecticism <clears throat> I'm coming back to your question or rather circuitous route um, which is really people taking bits and pieces of, of everything a bit of Freud, a bit of Jung, a bit of behaviorism and so on and I've said that, in a sense, there's a Christian eclecticism which takes bits as well, but from an informed Christian framework. Now, one big part of... One strong influence in the last ten years or so has been what is called systems theory, uh, especially coming out of family therapy, which essentially says that an individual is, is part of a system of relationships. You're not alone. And most... Previously, most psychiatrists would have dealt with a patient and tried to help the woman with depression, giving her antidepressants, talking to her about a relationship with her husband. <clears throat> in the last 10, 15 years, there's a strong movement to get her husband in there and to talk together and to discover that he actually may be the one who's more sick than she is. Or to get the whole family in if there's a child sick 
And you don't just see the child, as used to be true in psychoanalytical therapy, but you see the whole family, and you discover that the whole family actually is dysfunctional. And the child is just the symptom of the whole family's sickness. And then you go even further and you say, well, we need neighborhood therapy. <laughs> when you have some vandals in the community, let's get the whole neighborhood in and treat the whole neighborhood. Because the vandals are just a symptom of the whole thing. Um, so that there is a lot of writing and systems theory which um, deals with the individual in relation to relationships around. And in relation to cross-cultural work, I, I don't know what is around now. I haven't, I haven't looked into that. In, in recent years at all. Any specific Christian writings in the systems theory? I don't know of any. Uh, only, you know, wait a minute. There's one, I, I don't know the, uh, the title there. Um, no, I can't remember. I may come to me. I'll try and think of it later on. Well, if, if you know of anybody who's equipped to think in those areas, perhaps you could ask them to do so. Some of us need to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are you working on yourself? Um, well, I'm working in the inner city, um, encouraging Christians mainly in outreach to Muslims. Yeah. So um, all those areas obviously very much. <coughs> so there, you're. you're In relation to psychology, I'm thinking. I mean, I, I'm well, when you're trying to help counsel people in different cultural situations, mm. obviously you find that they are thinking in different ways and yes. have different needs and look at the world in different ways. Um, so that's quite important that one learns to understand the person as involved within that whole society. Yes. And most of the stuff that you read on Christian counseling is developed in a very specifically Western situation. Um, yeah. And I also think that part of the problem for Western Christians is that we then interpret people from different cultures in terms of our own oh, psychological systems, yes. which may or may not be appropriate. Right. So I mean, you, you just need to know an enormous amount about their culture and make your own interpretations, don't you? I mean, it's certainly that there's quite a lot of literature a while back on, for instance, the fact that in India, psychological complaints often come out as somatic physical symptoms, um, <clears throat> uh, whereas we, would, we might more readily express depression, they would express it as, a, as some somatic symptom, physical symptom. Um, in a sense, you need to know how they... How, they relate, how, how marriages work, all sorts of things, don't you? <coughs> you could have come in on that. You, you did, in your earlier talk, mention the concept of common grace. Yes. And uh, presumably you would see God's common grace at work in some of the cultural aspects of other societies. You're not, you know, I, I'm thinking particularly about a, a newspaper article I read on an Indian airplane and it was a critique of Western missionaries' books uh, with relation to India. And there, they'd taken one particular book, which was a sort of a Western American missionary analysis of Indian culture, and it you know, totally condemned Indian culture as demonic and totally um, anti-God. And uh, that, you know, that was really an article making a plea for some controls on missionaries because of that kind of 
analysis of that culture. And to me, that seemed to be an unbalanced sort of approach to other people's culture, where you must surely see some some elements of God's common grace at work in the controls and so on in, in those cultures as well. Sure. Yes, I think rather like <coughs> rather like my looking at the different worldviews behind different psychological systems, you can do the same with different cultures. You can see things that are true and right and good, so that the um, say there are many many cultures which aren't Christian in their base who have a very strong tradition of caring for the elderly. Uh, they take they live after <coughs> in their families, uh, which is something I think that we have we have lost um, in our post Christian culture anyway. Um, so there are there are good things there, but it's very important to understand the underlying worldview behind that that country, which leads to the sort of culture that they have. And I think one of the reasons that India is the way it is, or has been for so long, is because of its view of reality. Um, they haven't developed science um, in the way that the, the, the Western world developed it, particularly around the time of the Reformation, with a strong Christian view of reality. This is the world made by God that we can explore. So many of the scientists, like William Harvey and others, were Christians, um, doing it all to the glory of God. For the, the, the Hindu, particularly the higher philosophical Hindu, that reality, the, the created world of matter, is an illusion. Uh, and also because of karma and reincarnation, there's really no incentive to care for the, the sick and the suffering. Um, and I think a lot of the impetus in, in that area came from Christian missionaries coming in years ago in terms of hospitals and so on, the medical work. Um, so you have to look at both the good and the bad in those cultures and, and where they come from in terms of the belief systems underlying. Um, William, when William... All these missionaries, all the manuals, we're, we're focusing very yeah. much on the, the belief system. Uh, yeah. Seeing no good coming right. from that. Right. It to be rather... Yes. Yes. That's yeah, true. But I think I think it's it's dangerous to say that the missionaries. It, there's there's a great sort of thing about saying missionaries are, were you know colonialists and part of the empire, etc., etc. And that's historically that's not true. Um, the, the whole colonialist thing went along in parallel with the missions, but they actually at times came into conflict. Um, rather than, than working together. That's a whole other story, though. Ian would tell you a lot more about that. He's done a lot of work on on, uh, on that. Are we, are we supposed to be finishing long mm -hmm. Did you? If people want to go, do slip out. Um, if, if you want to stay and talk a bit more, I'm happy to. Yeah. Well, it's a very amorphous kind of question. I'm not really sure whether it's an answer. I'm just interested, really. Um, but... Uh, I suppose I was, I was just interested to know what what you uh, what you liked or disliked or felt about um, the kind of uh, the kind of untrained uh, Christian counsellor that, that kind of that kind of area. Untrained. <laughs> yes, um, do explore that. Um, what I mean by that is uh, unformally, not formally trained. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, so and there's a. Yeah, sort of in, in some churches there's a feeling that that all you need to do is to apply the scriptures mm -hmm. to people's problems in the right mm -hmm. way and you don't need professional counsellors is that the sort of thing um, you're thinking? Or? I suppose I'm, I'm thinking more about uh, 
um, um, a tendency that, that I've that, that I worry about, which is um, that people have a have some understanding of um, of psychological techniques um, and perhaps not a perhaps not a deep grounding in them. And so they use those in I wonder whether it could be quite a superficial or a dangerous way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I can put my, my sort of ideal model of a church <laughs> is that that um, if there is good biblical preaching and practical application of that pastorally in a church and there are good fellowship groups where this is ideal um, where people are supporting one another helping each other in life um, helping each other to understand the word of God and so on um, then there will be less need for counsellors right? so the structure of a church is really important now it may be necessary though to have two or three or four people in the church who are particularly gifted as, and, and who, who do have further training who can help those who are not helped by just the very basic level of counselling yeah? I mean, I think in, in all Christians should be able to you don't need to call it counselling but to help each other um, to, to be more conformed to the image of God as we've been talking about but you always do need, there, there are bound to be some people with deep hurts and deep problems who need specialist help. I think it is dangerous for people to meddle too much in areas where they're not sure where they're going. But they, but they, do, they do need some sort of supervision or help, some professional expertise. You need to know when, if you're doing that sort of thing, you need to know when you really need to say to this person, look, I'm, I'm out of my depth here, um, but... It is possible for, the, you know, for someone else to help you. I mean, I don't engage much in the way of counselling in the way that you would, but I do, I do engage in something that overlaps with, which is that is spiritual, spiritual direction. And again, you know, in the training that I've done, it has been emphasised that I need to recognise when there is, um, when there is the possibility that here is something that's not um, something that's just, you know, direction and normal Christian growth, um, but is actually maybe something that's a a disturbance, a, you know, a clinical disturbance, a psychological disturbance that actually needs to be referred to somebody else. Yes. 